Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in New York City. Also, somewhere in New York State is Ryan Goodman, our regular Thursday co-host. How are you doing, Ryan? Fairly well, David. Thanks. Uh, Well, um, that's good to hear. Ryan, of course, is the editor of Just Security and professor at NYU Law School. And we are joined in Washington um, by one of our founding partners in all of this uh, endeavor, Corey Shockey of AEI. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. But I must confess, I have decamped west of the 100th meridian. I'm home in Glen Ellen, California. Oh, well, you are very lucky and very smart, as we've known for a long time. Uh, For those of you who have not been following this, Corey and I, and Corey and Rosa and I particularly, have been doing this for, this is the third anniversary of this podcast. And we did the other one for a year or two before it. So I think we've been doing it for five five years now. Um, Glenn Kessler is far too young to remember any of that. Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post uh, is also joining us for the first time, uh, which is a great thing. Glenn is the co-author of a new book called Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth, The President's Falsehoods, Misleading Claims, and Flat-Out Lies, which he's written with Salvador Rizzo and Meg Kelly, also of the Washington Post. They are part of a fact-checker team um, that has provided, I don't think I'm overstating it when I say a real national service during the Trump administration, um, keeping track of of the President's many um, lies and misstatements and deceptions and incidents of disinformation. Uh, We're approaching 20,000 or so lies now, Glenn. Will that call for a small party among your staff or (laughs) how will you commemorate this? Well, we'll probably put out a, like a new video or something like that. We did something when it was 10,000. So we'll we'll hit 20,000 sometime in July. Well, I'm, Not sure we all look forward to that, but I'm sure you're right about that. So I think what we'll do, because there's a lot to discuss with what's happened in the past week, and I think um, it's a great time to have Glenn here, not just because the book is just out, but because much of what has happened this past week has been founded um, or centered on, as in many weeks during this administration, on lies or misinformation or deceptions on the part of the president and people around him. And then we'll talk about some of the consequences of those things. But I think we'll start with a question for Glenn from Corey and then from Ryan, and then I'll ask one, and then we'll be off to the races on the week. Corey, where would you like to start? Uh, I would like to start with thanking Glenn for the service he's done to our country by cataloging so... um, of such long duration, all of the ways in which the president 
is lying to the American public. I wonder for you, which ones do you think are most significant? Because what I notice is in the defense realm, there are lots of things the president has done that um, are concerning, but I find myself making a distinction between where he's just misrepresenting what's happening and where, uh, for example, he's doing something illegal or constitutional. Do you find yourself keeping that tally? And if so, which are the ones that worry you most? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. Uh, as part of the book, we, did, we do have a chapter where we try to identify like the top 10 falsehoods. And it was a very difficult task because we wanted to look for things that were big and important. Uh, at the same time, uh, something that revealed something about the character of the president and the way he spoke about things. Uh, I don't have the list right in front of me. It, it all becomes a blur. But, you know, the, on that list were things such as saying that Mexico was paying for the wall, which he still says, even though he's, he's uh, you know, without congressional authorization, taking billions of dollars to produce what is not a wall, but a, you know, a glorified barrier. Um, his claim that he, you know, is protecting pre-existing conditions, which is a kind of typical of the president where he says things that are completely against the policies of the administration. I mean, they tried to weaken those protections and he's actually in court trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. So, and then there are, there are also things where just lies about his personal behavior. So where he says he knew nothing about the payments to his alleged paramours, even though he's caught on audio talking about those payments. But, you know, just in the, in, since you know, we, we do have a chapter, we managed to squeeze in the chapter about the coronavirus. Uh, but, uh, you know, there have been more things that have come out. And so there are some of his, his falsehoods that are potentially dangerous, such as touting a possible cure that is actually dangerous for people. And he went around saying, you know, what, is you, what, if, what do you have to lose? And in fact, there are people that could possibly lose their lives because of a, you know, a kind of quackery that he has promoted. Well, there is also the, you know, sort of original sin of the, the Russia lie, right? Saying it's a Russia hoax and nothing happened there. And Mueller found nothing happened there when none of those things are actually true, right? I mean. Right. I, we, we have plenty of claims about the Russia investigation there too. And, and in, the, in the case of Russia, what's kind of amazing to me is he, you know, he latches onto these conspiracy theories. So uh, one of the reasons he got into the mess with impeachment was because he firmly seemed to believe that it all started in Ukraine, that there was a server there and that's the kinds of things that he brought up on the phone with the Ukrainian president. And, uh, it's kind of amazing that after being in office so long with access to all this intelligence, that he would still fall back on a conspiracy theory that started as Russian disinformation. Yeah, I do sort of wonder whether it's more disturbing to have a president who's lying all the time who one doesn't have a solid grasp on reality. R Ryan? Um, so I also just wanted to start out by thanking you, Glenn, for what is an, you know, a national service and also in some sense 
hopefully would be replicated by journalists in other countries with their own problems with political leaders, uh, just showing them the template of how to do this. Um, so I guess the question I, ha one of the questions I had in mind is um, how to counteract uh, this type of um, deceit uh, on the part of the president. And in the introduction, you, you all do cite a couple, you know, social scientific studies about how people process information. Um, so I guess the thought I have is on, on one level, there's some social science evidence that says even when people see false headlines and they don't, and they know it's false, it still sticks in the memory in a certain way. So that what's so um, concerning about some of the president's lies is that even when we try to counteract them by exposing them, we're still spreading them, right? And it's that yeah. kind of concern, do we even like quote tweet this and explain why it's a, so what are the best techniques for counteracting that is kind of one question that I, I think about a lot. And of course, one technique is what you all have actually done here. So this monumental task of being able to catalog it all systematically, um, but other ways in which you think about the answer to that question. Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, we, the president has the biggest megaphone in the world. So anything he says is by its nature newsworthy. And one problem that, that journalists have faced is that you are uh, conditioned to say, well, it's a pres presidential statement, therefore it's important. Uh, you know, with, with other things, like we don't necessarily fact check like a, a bizarre video that has very little traffic that is spreading falsehoods because there you don't want to give more energy to that, to that video. But in the case of the president, you're really stuck with having to write about what he says. Uh, and I, I've not quite, you know, we do all our fact checks, and, you, and, I, and I believe that we've helped condition other reporters that as they write about what the president says or does, they embed corrections to it. There was a, you know, a very nice piece uh, the other day in the, in the New York Times when Trump said all sorts of falsehoods after the SpaceX launch. And Peter Baker, the reporter, just went through and with each statement the president said, immediately said, well, this was wrong or actually this started with Obama or this, you know, even though he took all credit for it. So I kind of like to think that the rise of fact-checking has conditioned reporters in the age of Trump to basically fact-check it in the midst of the article as opposed to simply letting the president have a say and then having someone else fact check it afterwards. You know, it brings to mind a question which I, I hadn't really thought about asking or maybe two parts because I think Brian brings up an interesting point, which is we live in a time and we have new communications techniques and technologies available to us where, A, on the one hand, I wonder if people are come to you from other countries and said, how do you do what you do? We'd like to do it. And B, um, it, you know, it seems to me, I, I don't recall who said it, and it may have been in your book that I read it. I read it someplace in the past couple of days, and Corey will know because this is actually an 18th century reference, but it was, it was either Samuel Johnson or, or, or maybe it was Jonathan Swift. Somebody talked about how if a lie is just believed for an hour, it's done its work. Maybe that was in your book, but yes, but, it was in, a, in the book. Yes, yeah, and and um, and and so to me, the the more real time the fact checking, the better. And you know, I sort of imagine because I'm old and I remember pop up video, you know, sort of 
live live video with with pop up fact checking, you know, so that you could sort of do this in real time. Um, I'm just wondering if you know if 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 there's a you know a next phase in our ability to be able to do this better. Well, the, the, there's been a lot of uh, interest in automated fact checking uh, and allowing because. Trump is somewhat easy to fact check because he keeps repeating the same things. So you can literally say, oh, he said this before, we fact checked it. So people have tried to develop apps so that therefore, if you're listening to a speech by Donald Trump and he says for the nth time this particular falsehood, they would instantly get a fact check as he's saying it. Uh, And, you know, the growth of fact checking since I've been doing this now for nine plus years. When I started, there were maybe a dozen or so fact-checking organizations around the world. There are now 230. It has just exploded. And, the, and it, particularly in countries where you have like Brazil or India, countries where you actually have a weakening of democratic norms, more and more fact-checkers have come on the scene to hold politicians to account. And there's some very innovative things happening where how people fact if how they fact check things on social media how they fact check things uh in different platforms we for a while there we had fact checks on snapchat uh at the washington post we've branched uh very much into video which seems to be a way that people they use their phones and they look at videos and they we actually get more people watching our videos than actually reading our fact checks. We had a fact check uh, recently having to do with, uh, uh, you know, examining, you know, the, the assertion by the administration that the virus actually came out of a lab in, in Wuhan, China. And that video got more than 2 million views on YouTube. It's, it's, it's fascinating, and it raises a whole bunch of other questions about the breadth of this that are associated with disinformation. Presidents get fact-checked. People on YouTube and Facebook and elsewhere don't. Um, and so we live in an age where the ability to lie is not only uh, or to deceive is, is become uh, uh, greater and to reach a bigger audience but, and is possible, but, but also as we live on sort of the, the cusp of... of um, AI-assisted fakes that are impossible to understand. You know, I mean, I think it's going to get harder still. Um, but let me let me move on. Let me move on to the to the week that we've just gone through, and I'd like to go around and pose a question to each one of you about the week, and then we can have a little bit of a conversation about it. Um, because you know, Corey, you asked at the very beginning, you know, what were some of the most consequential lies, and it seems to me that you know kind of if there were a handbook of what are the kind of most consequential lies that a, a, a head of state could offer, they would be a lie that allowed the head of state or enabled the head of state or justified the head of state setting aside their constitution, setting aside the rules that normally governed governing, um, uh, and enabled them to claim or assert powers that they don't have. And that's exactly what it seems to have happened in this past week, where we've had the president of the United States essentially say, there is a massive threat that warrants the utilization of the United States military 
um, to quash it. Um, and this has, of course, been a source of great unease and controversy. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that as somebody who has spent an enormous amount of time thinking about c- civil uh, military relations. So I, um, I take issue with one element of your framing. I agree the president's lying about the nature of the protests, about the proportion of violence occurring. And he's also incredibly misleading in suggesting that the violence is part of the protests. That is, he's trying to conflate people exercising their constitutional rights with violence in a way that enables him to um, militarize the situation. And that's very dangerous. What is equally striking for me is that the things the president is threatening to do override elected officials' preferences about how to handle the protests and how to handle the rioting by imposing uh, American military forces under the authority of the federal government to act in states and localities. As shocking as that is, that's actually not illegal and it's actually not unconstitutional. One of the things I really hope we will all take away from the experience we are having uh, right now as a country is that Congress really needs to tighten the statutes that give the president legal authority under things like the Insurrection Act. You know, as our colleague Rosa Brooks pointed out in her terrific piece in the Washington Post, um, a lot of these authorities have their basis in racist policies of the 19th century. And it is long overdue, um, even though they have been used in more positive ways to advance racial justice in the U.S. and racial representation in the 20th century, we still ought to really tighten up on some of these authorities. I'd be interested in what Ryan hears about that. But one more thing before I... um, before I hand it over, which is that the, it, the, the active duty military has been very slow to take public positions on this, and they have been right to be very slow to take those positions because we don't want a military leadership that comfortably sits in judgment of the political choices of their elected superiors. But watch, hearing the president in the Rose Garden and on Twitter um, advocating the use of violence against American citizens and trying to pose this difficult moment as one where law and order and military force are opposed to what American citizens are doing in peaceful protest, and the Secretary of Defense talking about the need to dominate the battlefield when what he's talking about is American citizens protesting in their cities and local environments, and seeing the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in a battle uniform engaged in a political stunt with the President pushed even the active duty military 
to want to distinguish the values of our military institution, stress their subordination and fealty to the Constitution, um, and uh, reinforce their in their the extent to which they are of, from, and ingrained in American society to limit the president's ability to do that. And General Dave Goldfein and Command Master Sergeant Wright of the Air Force were incredible leaders in this conversation and deserve an enormous amount of credit. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, you bring up a good point. This kind of thing has happened before. It happened at the very beginning of the country, you know, the Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion. I think at one point you had uh, uh, George Washington himself riding out to put down these first rebellions, which had to do with paying taxes um, and whether or not the federal government was actually going to be able to hold its own. And And it's happened periodically throughout history, Hoover turning out um, the, the military against the bonus marchers is another example of it. And, and, and in most of the instances when this has come up, one thing that hasn't come up is whether or not the president has misled about the origin of the threat. Um, and so, Glenn, you know, it, you know, in doing the work that you're doing, that seems to be one of the trickiest parts of this week, right? Where the president and, and Barr, even today, is saying, well, you know, this is co- being caused by Antifa and other groups. Now, well, that's true, except Antifa is not really a group and, and he doesn't care to name the other groups. Uh, but they've tried to spin it as a threat from the far left and to minimize the threat from the far right. Uh, and that's a kind of dangerous line too, isn't it, Glenn? Yes, uh, exactly. And we're we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who has been arrested and who has been you know implicated as possibly being part of the violence. You have uh certainly you have evidence that there are white supremacist well, white supremacists who are trying to take advantage of the situation and pose as these so-called antifida groups. Uh, you all you know antifida actually rose up as a counterforce to white supremacists. They tend to show up when they're white supremacists. So we're not able to sort this out yet in a, in a very clear fashion. The president, of course, has jumped to conclusions. Uh, the one thing that struck me as Corey was talking, you know, so much of the way the presidency has operated before Trump came along was there was an understanding that a president would abide by certain standards and certain rules or certain traditions. And Trump is constantly trying to push the boundaries of that because he's not necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily expect a previous president to take advantage in the ways that he has of the vagaries of the law. Can I add one thing to that on the causes of the uh, protests? I saw today a passage um, from Martin Luther King where he said of earlier American civil rights protests that the cause of the protests is comfortable white people doing too little. And I think all of us need to take that on board in this moment too. Police brutality toward our fellow black Americans 
is the cause of the protest and us doing too little to root that out is also the cause of the protest. Right. And what you and you don't have a president at the moment who wants to try to, you know, calm calm the situation as opposed to you t- seeking some sort of political advantage uh, because he's in a very difficult election situation. Yeah, well, and so one of the things we've seen, Ryan, is a, a remarkable set of comments in the past forty-eight hours from leaders of the military and defense community um, who have, for all the good reasons that uh, Corey has mentioned, remained reticent for a long time, but including uh, former Secretary of Defense um, Mattis, uh, General Allen, um, Admiral uh, uh, Mullen, uh, 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 Barry McCaffrey, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a long list. I saw you actually tweeting out this long list. And I'm just wondering, um, do you think it was the right thing to do at the right time? And do you think this is some kind of a watershed? Um, so I think it has to be seen as a watershed, especially with um, Admiral Mullen and uh, former Defense Secretary Mattis. Uh, in the sense that Mattis had, had a high threshold himself. Not that his threshold should be our threshold, but he had a very high threshold of ever speaking out against a sitting president uh, where he had served in the cabinet. Um, so it really did take something extraordinary, and what he has said is extraordinary in terms of the president being a threat to the country uh, and the Constitution. And not just about the particular incident uh, with Lafayette uh, Park, but rather the president's um, disposition towards trying to divide the country and not unite it, um, which I think is also Mattis speaking to what he saw up front and in person and in private with the president, um, not just what we all see publicly. So I think that was a, a watershed in that sense. Um, and then it might break one way or the other. I do think it means that the military in a certain sense and its relationship to the president, it can't really be the same. Um, and I don't know how the president even recovers from that, uh, if he wanted to recover from that. Um, I don't know what it spells for the future. So there was a remark today by Senator uh, Republican Senator Murkowski, where she said that uh, Secretary Mattis's comments were, if I get these all right, honest, truthful, necessary, and um, uh, last one was something like, a, a, you know, a little too late or something like <laughs> that. Like uh, delayed but good, and then she said that she was struggling with whether or not to support the president for the 2020 re-election, and that was just odd. Like, there is no daylight between agreeing that Mattis's comments were necessary and truthful, and then saying that you struggle as to whether or not you'd support this president who is, as Mattis is describing, a direct existential threat to the country. Um, so that's the only question I have is where this really does, how much does it move the needle? I think it must move the needle within people who care about the Marines, care about the military, care about uh, civilian military relationships and the understanding of how scary it is in terms of the path that the president would go down if there were not resistance um, inside the White House or inside his cabinet to what he in his heart of hearts wants to do. So, Corey, you know, in addition to the litany of, of generals and 
but we could have had others, Dempsey and others who've said things. Uh, you've also seen, uh, as you alluded to, uh, serving members of the military and serving senior officials walking a fine line here. Um, uh, looked like Secretary Esper walked back some of the statements that the president um, and the White House was putting out and made a point to underscore the values that guided the military and their obligation to the Constitution. Uh, there was a, a letter from General Milley that did something to that effect. There was a statement from the Secretary of the Army. In fact, it was quite remarkable because in the 24-hour period, you had all of these people making statements that appeared to distance themselves from the president. And going back to your last comment, you know, do you think anybody has crossed a line here, or do you think everybody was well within their rights to do what they did? I think both this, I think the president crossed the line and did deep damage to the norms of civil-military relations in the United States by trying to militarize the federal response to legitimate expression of people's uh, First Amendment rights. I think Secretary Esper uh, was way over the line by talking about American cities as battle spaces and, and talking about how the military's role in dominating those battle spaces. I think General Milley was way over the line to be in a combat uniform and engaged in a political stunt with the president. I think uh, Secretary Esper was, made himself ridiculous by suggesting that he didn't know where the president was going and he thought they were going to look at a vandalized public bathroom. Um, I think uh, Secretary Esper did a good job yesterday morning with his press conference, and then a disgraceful job walking back those decisions. And now in the on again, off again, it appears the infantry brigades are headed out of Washington, DC and back to their home bases. Um, so uh, one, of my, my, one of my favorite parts of Jim Mattis's memoir is he tells a story that I remember him telling me at the time it occurred when he was the CENTCOM commander. And he got woken up in the middle of the night to make a decision about whether making the, whether he sh should approve or not approve a strike on a, on a jihadist cell uh, on the border, I think it was, of Jordan and Iraq. And he approved the raid, which Al-Qaeda later suggested was a wedding party, right, of all young armed men. Um, and there was an investigation into it. And, you know, war crimes investigations are very serious things. And um, Jim was asked how long it took him to make the decision that they could attack the wedding party. And his answer was 40 years, right? That even though in the moment he made the decision quickly, he had been thinking seriously about the nature of those decisions for 40 years. And that's why Secretary Esper and General Milley don't get a pass 
and nobody else gets a pass on saying, what, the president thrust me into these circumstances, everything happened so fast. And what David was referring to was my criticism on Twitter, my challenge to General Nilly, that if a subordinate in combat told you after they made a bad decision, that everything happened so fast and uh, the situation changed radically and I just got pulled along. You would never accept that as an, an, an adequate explanation for making a bad decision. And so we shouldn't let the senior military and senior civilian officials of the Defense Department use that excuse either. No, no question. You know, Glenn, first of all, I'm very sympathetic with somebody who has to write a book on uh, ongoing problems within the Trump administration, because you have to end it at a certain point. <laughs> and, and, and I've gone through this myself. I have one coming out in the fall, and it's like, you know, what do I do? Because I know it's always going to be overtaken by events. Uh, but there are some issues that are enduring. Uh, and Glenn, I don't know if you listen ever to this podcast, but one of the things that I do to play to Corey's sensibilities is I try to make as many 18th century or earlier quotes. As and my I, heart flutters every time you do, David. <laughs> every, every, every time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing something uh, which will come out next week in the New York Review of Books about Trump and this period. And I was reading John Adams. And John Adams... Um, and I'm, I'm going to read a little bit here. It'll take a, a, a second. But, you know, he writes a lot about how the moral fiber of our leaders is what is essential to making the system work. And he goes, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Oaths in this country are as yet universally considered as sacred obligations. That which you have taken and so solemnly repeated on that venerable ground is an ample pledge of your sincerity and devotion to your country and its government. And, you know, essentially what he's saying is, if we are a nation of liars, if, if, if our leaders become liars, then this isn't going to work. And I think one of the things that I find interesting and, you know, is, 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 is almost written between every line of your book is not the lies. It's the number of people who are in a position to contradict those lies who don't. And that there is this whole cos, you know, cosmos of, 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 of Republican leaders who go, if the president said it, okay, I'm not going to step away from it. And there is this whole media bubble, you know, Fox and OAN and Breitbart and so forth that repeat and manufacture these new lies. And so they don't even feel like lies because there is this alternative reality going on here. And I'm just wondering, do you think something has fundamentally broken? I mean, you just draw a distinction in the book between past presidential lies and, and this man's, but is it just his personality or is there something deeper at work that, that affects a whole class of people. Well, certainly his personality has exacerbated this. And it'll be interesting to see what happens after he goes away. Uh, I mean, his, this, you know, I've lived this uh, presidency day by day in terms of fact-checking everything he says. 
it wasn't until we put together the book and put it all in one place that the, you know, it was shocking to me just to see it all there. A lot of it I had forgotten about or had, you know, it had faded away or, but just to be able to categorize and put it all in one place and see it all there. And one thing that comes through is President Trump is completely and utterly sure that he is right about everything. There's no convincing him otherwise that he's mistaken. In the campaign, he, he completely misstated NATO funding. He still misstates NATO funding. They took him to the tank to try to convince him this is how NATO works. And he just completely rejected it. And to, you know, to go back to this week, one thing that is really striking is the president is a man who has never served in the military, never served in public office, never been a mayor or a senator or a governor, and yet he was on the phone lecturing the 50 state governors about how they had to handle the situation, a situation for which he is actually one of the least prepared presidents we've had to deal with a situation like this. And yet, because he's so convinced he is right, and no one can, can tell him something that is different from what he already believes, he just moves forward. And our book has many examples of that, where uh, he just cannot be convinced in any way that he is wrong, and he convinces himself that whatever he says is correct, even if it's completely the op opposite of what he said yesterday. Um, I, I, go ahead, Brian. Just to jump in with a question that I've had in the back of my mind, I know that's circulated before, but it goes right to what um, you just said, Len. The distinction between um, falsehoods and lies, which is very hard to draw because my understanding is that you all in the fact-checking business can't say it's a lie unless the person intentionally, knowingly is making a false statement. So in fact, indeed, if the president believes X to be true or believes the conspiracy and we, and we don't know differently whether or not he believes it or not, we can't actually say it's a lie until we have affirmative evidence that he's lying. I think that's the way it right. goes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The one piece that I don't fully grasp is when, you know, when do we move from it's a falsehood to it's a lie? So a couple examples are, one, you just described times where he said something multiple times <laughs> and he's been fact-checked and, and the rest. So you would begin to think, okay, the presumption starts to flip in the other direction. It's a lie unless we have evidence that he doesn't know. Uh, and, an example that I thought of recently as well is at some level, one is casting a worse aspersion on a person to think that they don't know what they're doing. Okay. So the new press secretary, um, Kaylee McKenney, and her first appearance said, I'll never lie to you. And then it's in that appearance that she trotted out these statements about the FBI's transcript on Flynn that were just utterly false. And she read from the transcript. So, it was, you know, she, it was all very deliberate and prepared. She's a Harvard Law School uh, graduate. And my thought was, and it was thoroughly quickly fact-checked that she was making a false statement. My thought was, that's actually not fair to her. She's lying. She knows what she's doing. It's not fair to suggest she does not know what she is doing. Um, and so in the business, um, what do you think about where that line has been drawn? Because I remember way back in 2017, I think it was, when 
first journalists were finally comfortable actually using the L word <laughs> to apply to the president. But here at a certain point, yeah, shouldn't, it, shouldn't it be different um, under different contexts when it, different uh, patterns have emerged? Well, they, yeah, that's a fair question. Uh, the way we, we created this thing called the bottomless Pinocchio, where we identify a statement that the president has made 20 or more times that has been fact-checked as false. Um, it's, you know, but it's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. So the, the statement he has said more often than anything is that he created the best economy in U.S. history. And uh, it, lately, in the wake of the coronavirus, he can't say that anymore. And yeah, he's actually changed it now to the best economy in world history. <laughs> uh, he's even said that he had the best economy in the universe. Uh, and uh, I guess universal history. Uh, so, but, you know, he's now said it, I think it's 330 times or something like that. He says it almost every other day. But I'm pretty sure he believes this to be the case too. Like he has convinced himself that no one has ever done more for the economy than him, no matter what the data says. I mean, it, or just this week, I was just, seems a ridiculous thing to fact check, but I was just fact checking a statement that he has done more for African-Americans than any president since Lincoln. You know, I called a few historians who all, you know, effectively burst out laughing. But, you know, and, and there's evidence for this. Oh, was that that, this, this week, he said also, he's done more for religion than anyone. Oh, okay. <laughs> which I thought was something, you know. That's... Well, he held up the Bible, right? <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, and, and when he said he did more than any president since Lincoln, he actually provided a little list of the things he had done, which was like really meager compared to something like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Voting Rights Act of 1965, things like that. Um, so one of the this is one of the benefits of remaining uh, largely illiterate, right? That you don't have to face the comparisons of history. Um, and so as risible as all of those notions are, President Trump stomps around innocent of comparison. Uh, Ron Chernow, the great uh, biographer of Hamilton and uh, many others, I once heard an interview with Chernow where he said, every American president seems to think that they are the most reviled and the ones subject to the harshest press criticism and the most pol political polarization. Um, and it's never true. And it's because they don't read enough history that they don't realize that this is the norm. And so I carry that over into President Trump, not realizing anything because he doesn't bother to read anything. Well, you know, we have this database of his 19,000 claims. And I, uh, one of the statements he made recently was he's, he was tr he's been treated worse than Lincoln. Yes. And, and, and so in the, data, in, in the database, I simply, you know, usually we have a more detailed explanation of why a statement is wrong. But I simply wrote, Lincoln was assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, 
The best rebuttal I saw to the White House trying to suggest that, uh, you know, no, no president's ever been braver than President Trump walking from the White House over to St. John's Parish a block away was a delicious reminder that Theodore Roosevelt, while president, was shot while giving a speech, wounded, continued to finish the speech before seeking medical assistance. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Trump Trump walked across a park. Exactly. You know, so, you know, don't, don't minimize that. Um, well, you know, these are strange and troubling times, and um, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen in the months ahead. Trump, on a regular basis, demonstrates for us that when we, just when we think it can't get any worse, it, it, it does. And in this one week, we've really seen him threaten some basic principles of democracy based on some of his lies. And we don't know what he'll do next that's worse. But one thing that we do know is that it will likely be founded on a foundation of misrepresentations um, and lies, whether he knows their lies or not. Uh, And that's why this book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth, The President's Falsehoods, Misleading Claims, and Flat-Out Lies, from the fact-checker staff at the Washington Post, including Glenn Kessler, Salvador Rizzo, and Meg Kelly, is so important. I would add, by the way, um, and I'm not being paid to say this, that it's a very entertaining book to read. Uh, It's very lively. Um, Some of this stuff is extremely disturbing, um, but some of it is, as we've just demonstrated, so ludicrous um, that you can't help but smile through your tears or cry through your smiles. I'm not sure what's going on, um, but it's it's uh, it's 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 an important thing to read because it really is defining aspect of this time. So, congratulations, Glenn, on the book to you and to your colleagues. Thank you for it. Thank you for the work. I think you're going to be hard pressed over the next several months since the president's. Velocity of lying seems to have gone up straight throughout his term, has it not? Yes, it keeps going up. It's about, so, it's about 22, 25 claims a day right now. Yeah, it's really stunning, stunning. But thank you, Glenn. And of course, thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Corey. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a very hard week. Uh, fortunately, talking to smart people like this helps us through it. And um, we are grateful for it. Do you want to hear more of what we're doing? And some of the interesting things we've got coming up in the weeks ahead, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, where we have listed all of our podcasts and other, other, other projects and, and, and things. And if you feel so inclined, uh, click on membership, become a member, help support what we're doing here. Um, and in the interim, to all of you, take care of yourselves and be safe and healthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>